Okay, well, we sure do love our brothers and sisters at the Ventura campus. Let's let them know how much we love them. They'll be watching this message. We love you, Ventura. Wish we could all be together in one building, but it's good. And let's open up now to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We are continuing with our series on spiritual warfare and the armor of God. Almost finished with the series. We are in part 8 out of 9. So uh, next week will be the last part. Today we're going to talk about the sword of the Spirit. Fun and exciting. I'm happy about this. The sword of the Spirit from verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 6. What we will do is do what we've been doing. We'll read verses 10 through 18, the whole passage that we're taking these nine weeks to study. Read it, we'll pray, and we'll talk a bit about the sword of the Spirit. I am reading and preaching from the New American Standard Bible. So we'll start in Ephesians 6.10. The Apostle Paul writes to us and says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. And with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. This is God's word. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your work on the cross and your resurrection from the dead, which has reconciled us to God. Thank you, Jesus, that when we put our faith in you, we are brought into a standing before the Father, which is in grace. Thank you that we have peace with God. Thank you that as we sit here today, we are the beloved of God in Christ. Thank you for these wonderful things. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you teach us these things and you minister them to our hearts and you minister the love of the Father to our hearts. And we want to be a people who are fully experiencing the truth of Christ and the love of the Father and the power of the Spirit working in our lives. We thank you that you are teaching us in this passage to stand firm against the schemes of the enemy, opening our eyes to how real spiritual battle is and yet causing us to rejoice in your great provision of the armor through Christ and his work. Thank you that we don't have to give in. We don't have to roll over. We don't have to fall. You enable us to stand firm and to resist. Continue to teach us to do that. Lord, give us ears to hear. Let our hearts be alive to the glorious truth of Jesus and what he's done for us. Don't let us be passive or sleepy about these things. And please, Lord, Anoint me to teach and preach now in a way that brings much glory to Jesus and is faithful to your word and effective 
for the furtherance of your purposes in our community. We ask these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there is one thing that the Roman soldier would not go into battle without, and that's his sword. Even if he was caught unaware and he was in a scramble and he didn't have time to gird up his loins and put on the breastplate and throw on the helmet and maybe he couldn't even reach his shield, he would be sure to grab the sword. He wouldn't go into battle without the sword. Now, when the Roman soldier went into battle, he had a couple options for swords. There was a big, long, broad sword. And that sword could, you know, deal a blow to be sure, but that sword was heavy. He also had the choice of a smaller sword, about 18 inches long, kind of a dagger type sword thing. And that's the Greek word that's used here in our text and represented in our picture here. It's the one to two foot, about 18 inch long sword of the Roman soldier. And the reason that he might often grab that one when caught unaware, when assailed by the enemy was it was easier to wield. It was lightweight and it was quick and he could deflect blows easily and he could jab and deliver blows against his enemy quickly. And so the Roman soldier loved this lightweight sword. He would take it into battle and have much effective ground taken with that sword. And that sword of the Roman soldier is a metaphor for something that the Christian is supplied, and that is the sword of the Spirit. And the verse, verse 17, defines it for us, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. When we're talking about this thing, the sword of the Spirit, we are talking about the Word of God. It's called the sword of the Spirit because it's provided by the Spirit, right? Scripture makes it clear that the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture, and it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Christian is not left to his own strength for the power plunging of the sword. Rather, it's the strength of the Lord and the strength of his might through the power of the Holy Spirit that causes the sword to be effective. So it's the sword of the Spirit because the word comes to us from the Holy Spirit through Scripture and because it's made effective by the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And when we think about all this armor that we're called to take up and with which we're called to stand firm, we realize that the fullest expression of it is found in the person and the work of Christ. The final fulfillment of it, the greatest experience of it is in Christ and what he's done for us. For example, when we talk about the belt of truth girding up our loins, we realize that Jesus said, I am the truth. When we talk about the breastplate of righteousness, we remember the doctrine of imputed righteousness and we proclaim that Christ himself is our righteousness. When we talk about the shoes of the gospel of peace, we understand that Jesus himself is our peace and the one who has made peace between us and the Father. When we talk about the shield of faith that we're called to take up, we remember that it is in Christ alone that we put our faith and our hope in which we find such great defense. When we talk about the helmet of salvation, we remember that it is Jesus who is our savior and that we are saved by his work on the cross. He is our salvation. And when we think about the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, we remember that Jesus is the word of God. The gospel of John, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh, the incarnation and dwelt among us, the ministry of Christ. 
So when we talk about the sword of the spirit, we're talking about the cutting power of the person and work of Jesus against the enemy. When we talk about getting more of the word, we're talking about getting more Jesus. For he himself is the living word of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. There we go, church. Amen. Now, we're going to talk about these things with the sword. We're going to talk about the sword as a defensive weapon because it was of great defense, deflecting the blows of the enemy. And we're going to talk about the sword as an offensive weapon because a soldier only wants to be on defense before so long before he wants to start doing some poking and jabbing himself. You only want to play defense for so long before you want to put some points on the board. Defense is necessary and great, but there comes a moment for offense. And the sword of the spirit is our greatest offensive weapon. And then we're going to talk about, in my third point, how to wield and keep sharp our sword. So the first point is this. The sword of the spirit is used for our, the Christian's defense against Satan and his schemes and temptations. I want us to look at scripture in a successful portrayal of that and in a failure of that. I want to see a time when it worked, the sword of the spirit, and a time when it didn't work. So for the sword of the spirit working well, let's go to our ultimate example, the captain of our salvation, Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 4. Go to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to look at the temptation of Christ. We don't have time to kind of dive into the nuances of the temptation and the different characters of, of each one. We just kind of want to see how Christ used the word of God, the sword of the spirit, to stand firm against the enemy and so learn how we can do the same. We'll start in Matthew 3, verse 16 for a little context. It says in Matthew three sixteen, And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, and behold... The heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There's just a glorious little Trinitarian moment in the gospels. Jesus being baptized, the spirit of God descending upon the son of God in the form of dove and the voice of the father God coming down from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, affirming before the whole world the identity of the son as the beloved of the father. And then we get into chapter four. Now, in the original, there weren't chapter breaks. So this is the very next thing, the very next breath. Jesus' identity being affirmed by the Father. Now we're going to see it attacked by the enemy. This is what happens in our lives, right? We have new identity in Jesus Christ. Behold, if any man or woman is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. We were the enemies of God. Now through Christ, we're the beloved of God. And scripture declares that. And we have the spirit in us crying out, Abba, Father. So that the father says the same thing because we put our faith in Christ about us. This is my beloved daughter. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the enemy is always coming against that true Christian identity. We see it exemplified here. Verse one, chapter four. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Understatement. And the tempter 
came to him and said, if you are the son of God, do you see him attacking what God had just done? God's word had just come. God just spoke from heaven. This is my son. When God speaks, the enemy is always there to question, cast aspersion, try to bring doubt, try to malign the truth that God has spoke. God said, this is my beloved son. Here comes Satan saying, if you really are the son of God, if God's word is actually true, then he tempts him to prove it in a way other than God's word. He said, command that these stones become bread. But Jesus answered and said, it is written. It's found in scripture. It says in the Bible, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I just want us to see this. God spoke, the enemy attacked, tried to cast dispersion on what God said. And Jesus, our example, the example for the Christian, responded with the word of God. He said, well, it is written. It says in the Bible, he was quoting the book of Deuteronomy there. Notice he didn't have to say the address. You don't have to know the address, but you got to know the truth. I don't care about the address, but know the truth. He said, it is written. And then he had a ready response for the scheme of the enemy. And so he's able to stand firm. And so the enemy then did what the enemy will always do. He adjusted his tactic. He he changed his strategy a little bit. So it says in verse 5, then... The devil took Jesus into the holy city and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and he said to him, if you are the son of God, if what God said is true, throw yourself down for it is written. Uh Uh-oh. Now the enemy is coming in with a little Bible here. Interesting, isn't that? He will give his angels charge concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written... See this little war going on? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, we don't have the time to get into the details of the nature of the temptation, but the point is this. For every strategy of Satan, Jesus had a ready reply from the word of God that was apropos to the temptation of the enemy. So we see it again in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you If you fall down and worship me, then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Here is our successful example of the sword of the spirit, the word of God being used in defense against the schemes of the enemy. And this is just how it will play out in the life of the Christian. It may not always be a verbal exchange between us and the enemy, Though on occasion that happens, there's been many times I've been casting demons out of people and there's been this speaking, going back and forth, speaking the word of God against the enemy and the enemy responding through the person. But thankfully, those things are rare. What is more common is an internal dialogue. Anybody know what I'm talking about? This demonically inspired internal dialogue or it comes to us through third parties, media or a person or something else. But the protocol is the same. The strategy for war is the same. The defense is the same. Taking the truth of the word of God. Jesus was able to stand firm, to resist, and to overcome Satan because he knew, he applied, and he spoke the word of God. Now when it says in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 17, to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, 
In the original Greek, that word, word, is the word rhema. And there's a couple different words used in the New Testament for the word, word. You following me? Are you following me? Okay. English word, word. In the New Testament, there's two Greek words that are used that are translated in English word. One is logos, one is rhema. And they're usually just synonyms, okay? They're used interchangeably most of the time. But sometimes we see that rhema is used to denote the spoken word of God. So the sword of the spirit is effective when we speak the word of God. It's always effective even as a written word of God, but what Jesus did here was speak forth the truth of the word. Unleashing the sword is unleashing the word of God from our mouths. Jesus had a ready answer for what the enemy was doing in every temptation. And he used the sword as an instrument of precision. Again, the metaphor is not the big, broad sword. It's the small dagger that moves quickly, that hits incisively. It's used with precision. It's perfect for the moment. So the lesson we learn from Christ is that we need to apply the specifics of God's word to the specifics of the enemy's attacks against us. And so the question that I want to ask all of us is this. Are you able to do that? Have you handled the word enough? Have you spent enough time in the word that you're able to stand firm with the sword of the spirit, that you have a defense for what the enemy is trying to do in your life, for the various temptations for the way that he accuses you or the way that he tempts you? Have you spent enough time in the word of God to find, to meditate on, to memorize, to have ready, to pull out in the heat of the battle, the sword of the spirit to stand firm, to resist in the moment of temptation? That is the call on the Christian. And if we don't do that by spending enough time in the word so that we're able to wield the sword rightly, then we find that we fall to the schemes of the enemy. Now, I want us to see an example of where it wasn't wielded rightly, the sword of spirit. And we'll see this from poor Eve. Poor Eve. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. That's toward the beginning there. Genesis chapter 3. Jesus was the example of successfully wielding the sword. Now poor Eve, the example of failure. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, now the serpent was more crafty. Note that word. This is speaking of Satan here, crafty. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed did God say, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Now, you notice what Satan is doing here. He's doing what he always does. He's trying to second guess, cast aspersion on, create confusion about, muddy the waters concerning what God said. God had said in Genesis chapter 2 to Adam and Eve, you can eat from any tree of the garden except for this one, the tree of life. You can't eat from that one. Any other tree of the garden. And Satan comes along and tries to muddy the water. Is that really what God said? You hear this all the time. Is that really what the Bible means? I mean, does the Bible mean what it means? Is it saying what it says? This is what the enemy was trying to do. And Eve starts off well in the beginning with the sword. And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. 
God gave him that permission. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. Now she's doing a good job so far. So then here's what Satan does next, verse 4. And the serpent said to the woman, you're not going to die. That's not what it means. God's word doesn't mean what it says it means. It means something different. You're not going to die, verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Let me tell you what Satan is doing here. First, he's endeavoring to cast aspersion, create confusion about God's word, right? Indeed, did God really say? That's not what God meant. God's word doesn't mean what you think it means there. And then he's endeavoring to cast aspersion on, create confusion about God's character, his sovereign goodness, his good plan. He says, you know what God is trying to do to you, Eve? God is trying to keep something good from you. That's what God is. God is a cosmic killjoy. And God's trying to keep you from something good in your life, Eve. I mean, that's not really what his word means. And that's just keeping you from what you want to do and who you want to be and what you want to have. Oh, now the enemy's making some headway with Eve. And Eve should have continued to wield the sword steadfastly. But instead, instead, look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it appealed to her passion, and that it was a delight to the eyes, sense of possession, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, it could increase her position, She took from its fruit and she ate. See what happened there? Instead of being committed to the word of God and refusing to compromise on the word of God and perhaps going back to God and saying, God, okay, this is what you said. That's what you meant, right? God, just affirm your word. Let me me look that up again there in Genesis chapter two. Oh yeah, no, that's what you said. Instead of being committed to, standing firm on and not compromising on the word, she began to rationalize. Wow, the fruit, it looks so nice. It looks so tasty. And yeah, who doesn't want to be wise? Yeah, I think maybe God is trying to keep me from something that would be good for me from something that I want for myself. And therein came the fall of Eve. You see, what Eve failed to do was wield the sword of the Spirit faithfully and carefully. Carefully, meaning when the enemy, through a third party or directly, endeavors to cast aspersion on the word of God and the character of God, to be faithful with the sword would be to go back to go back and say, okay, is that what, really, is that what God means? Is, is that what the word says? Yes, that's what it means. And then to stand on it faithfully with commitment and without compromise. Eve compromised. Yeah, yeah, maybe God said that. Maybe he didn't mean that, but this looks so nice and shiny and tasty and it will be so good for me. And there she fell to the enemy. We need to remember Psalm 19, that the word of the Lord is perfect. The word of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandments of the Lord is pure. The judgments of the Lord is true. By, your, by them, your servant is warned that in keeping them, there is great reward. She thought God was a taker. Satan had convinced her that God wanted less than best for her. God was a taker. In keeping the word Eve needed to hear, there is great reward, not loss. 
And so let's be inspired by the psalmist later on, Psalm 119, my favorite chapter of the Bible where he says this. I'll read it to you. Oh, how I love your law, your word. It's my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. You get that? Your word, God, makes me wiser than my enemies. Our enemy here in this context is Satan. Satan's been around a long time. He's a wise guy. He's observed human nature for a long time. How can we, who have a very short lifespan, endeavor to be wiser than the schemes of the enemy, endeavor to be savvy to him only through the word of God? Careful, faithful, continual, uncompromising commitment to God's word makes us wiser than the enemy so that we're able to see what he's trying to do. Look at Psalm 119, verse 11. You know this one. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. To wield the sword faithfully is to treasure it in our hearts. You know, there's so many things that are competing with the word of God for our attention, right? There's our iPhones, there's our new cars, there's the internet, there's a favorite TV show, there's sleep, there's surfing, there's eating, there's all these other things. And then there's all these affections in our hearts. There's that person and there's that girl and these, these things and these hobbies and that pay and all this different stuff competing with the word of God. Listen, I have treasured your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Had Eve treasured the word rather than easily dismissed the word, it would have been a different story altogether. Now look at what it says in Hebrews chapter 3 concerning the word of God, or Hebrews chapter 5. Talking about the word of God. It says, for everyone who partakes only of milk, meaning not getting into the meat of the word, is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant, right? Spiritual baby, not mature, not enough time in the word. We grow by the word of God. We mature by the word of God. Christians don't grow day by day. I don't care how many years you've been a Christian. Christians grow word by word. The word of God. That's what nourishes and grows us from infancy to maturity. So then it says, but solid food is for the mature, right? Mature because we spend time in the word of God. Who because of practice, note that word, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. That was a failure of Eve. She had difficulty discerning between right and wrong, good and evil. The word of God, when we practice with it, when we practice with the sword of the spirit, when we handle it frequently, trains us to discern good and evil. That's what Eve failed to do. She said, well, it it looks good. Listen, never in the history of the world has it been more difficult to discern good from evil. Our culture en masse is calling good what is evil and calling evil what is good. And Satan is always looking to muddy the waters and cloud the perception. We need to be trained from the word of God, having practice with it to discern good and evil. Because Satan's no fool. He knows just how to make things look good enough for us to go for him. That's what happened to Eve. Look at this quote from Kyle Snodgrass. Isn't that a great name? Snodgrass. Used to be an old guy that surfed Rincon at like 85. His name was Snodgrass. Says this, 
I digress. Distracted by surfing. Um, Evil rarely looks evil until it accomplishes its goal. It gains entrance by appearing attractive, desirable, and perfectly legitimate. That's exactly what happened to Eve. Attractive. When she saw it was a delight to the eyes. Desirable. Good to eat. And perfectly legitimate. It'll make me wise. Why would I not do this? It is a baited and camouflaged trap. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And this is what's happening in our culture today. Things that God has declared to be an abomination are painted by our culture to be attractive, desirable, and perfectly legitimate. Culture is indoctrinating children from the youngest age to believe that what God has called detestable is perfectly legitimate. It's even desirable. It's attractive. That's why, brothers and sisters, we must have our senses trained to discern good and evil by practicing with the word of God. Or we fall to the deception of the enemy. Because sin is deceitful. Sin never shows you the price tag on the front end. Sin entices you. And then we see the great cost of it on the back end. Never shows you it's a price tag on the front end. On the front end, it just shows you the pleasure. But the Bible says it's a passing pleasure. It's a pleasure to be sure, but it's a passing pleasure. And what the deceitful nature of sin does is, is it hardens our hearts. Look at Hebrews 3, 13. It tells us to encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You know what this is? This is a proverbial frog in the water. Right? The Christian in culture today can, can easily become the frog in the water where the heat is turned up slowly and the frog doesn't even know it, but now the environment has changed and it's serious danger. Sin is deceitful, slow, insidious, and it begins to harden our heart compromise by compromise. This used to be unacceptable to me according to the word of God. Well, I just, you know, everybody's doing it. It's probably it's not, that, not, not that big of a deal. Hardening of the heart. And now we give ourselves to more. Deceit, right? Well, that's indeed, did God say? Did God really mean surely that's not what's going to happen? The Bible doesn't mean what it says. It means it's not saying what you think it's saying. Go ahead, it's okay to do that. We do that with our sexuality. We do that with substances. We do that with greed, with all measures of lust the deceitfulness of sin which hardens our hearts. And so the word of God says, encourage one another day to day lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Be like Moses who said, I'm willing to endure difficulty with the people of God rather than give myself to the passing pleasures of sin. And we need the sword of the spirit to do that, to be like Jesus in the moment of attack and not like Eve. Look at Psalm 119. These verses. From your precepts, your word, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. From your word, I get understanding. I'm able to discern right from wrong, truth from error, deception from Holy Spirit clarity. I'm I'm able to discern. Therefore, I hate every false way. I'm not going, oh yeah, that's kind of cool. I guess that's not so bad. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, the word of God says. 
From your word, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. I'm not compromising. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It illumines, shines light in the darkness, shows me truth from error. The unfolding of your words, now this isn't what it means, but allow me to take liberty. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Is anybody here simple? I'm a simple guy. I'm just a stupid six foot six surfer. Anybody here simple? Just me? Oh, and three of us. You guys are awesome. The three of us who say we're simple, we're so thankful for the unfolding of the word of God. Wake up in the morning and unfold the word of God because we are living in dark days and the unfolding of the word of God gives light. We're living in confusing days and the unfolding of the word of God gives understanding to the simple. Psalm 119 again, 92 through 95. If your law had not been my delight... Okay, that was Eve. She didn't delight in the law. She wasn't treasuring God's word. If your word had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. All of us are going to experience affliction and suffering and hard times. That's for sure. I would have faltered if your word had not been my delight. I'll never forget your precepts, your word, for by them you have revived me. All of them are going to need times of being revived. All of us are going to need times of being revived times where we feel dead and listless and worn out and in the ground, revived by the word. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts, your word. The wicked wait for me to destroy me, Satan and demons, but I shall diligently consider your testimonies. Brothers and sisters, what this is is a call to diligently consider the word of God. When the waters are muddied, when the temptation is Heavy, when the attack is continual, diligently consider the word of God. Had Eve done that, she would have not have faltered in that day. Jesus did that, Eve didn't. Look at this promise from Psalm 119. I love this. This It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's one of my life verses. I will walk in freedom because I've devoted myself to your commandments, your word. In the Hebrew, that word that's translated freedom is broad place. I will walk in a broad place because I devoted myself to your word. What's the idea of a broad place? If you think about animals, like a deer, okay, let's think Bambi for a minute. Bambi and deers, they'll come out of the thick of the forest into a broad place, a plain, a, a, a field, right, a prairie. They'll come out there only when they're safe and secure, And when they're out in the open like that, they're feeding and they're healthy and they're being nourished. But when they're frightened, when they're threatened, they run back into the thick of the woods. God's will for you is that you're out in the open in a broad place with the sun shining on you, being nourished on the truth of God's word, not living in fear because God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. I walk in freedom because I have devoted myself to your word. Think of the Christian without any armor. In the day of trouble, all he or she can do is hunker down in the foxhole And the foxhole is a place of fear. But when we take up the full armor as we're being called to do, we walk in freedom. We're covered in the armor and with the sword. We don't need to be in the foxhole. We come into a broad place, the place of freedom. We walk in the sunlight, in the place of nourishment and health and security because I've devoted myself to 
your word. So the defensive action of the word of God means knowing it, learning it, being committed to it, refusing to compromise on it, diligently considering it, hiding it in our hearts, and speaking it with our mouths. These are how we use the sword of the spirit in defense. Now, let's talk about this. The sword of the spirit is used as an offensive weapon against the enemy. Again, the word used in Ephesians chapter 6 for word is rhema. It denotes the speaking of the word of God. So when we're speaking God's word, proclaiming God's word, preaching God's word, singing God's word, all of these things are an offensive, aggressive move against the enemy. The proclaiming, the speaking, the praying, the singing of God's word is an act of aggression against the enemy who is endeavoring to hold those whom we love captive to do his will. Speaking, praying, singing, preaching, proclaiming, talking about, teaching God's word is an act of aggression against the enemy. The spirit, the sword of the spirit, excuse me, as an offensive weapon because there's much at stake. 2 Corinthians 4, we're familiar with it. It says, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God, lowercase g of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so because Satan blinds minds of people, we're called to Bring the word of God as an attack against what the enemy is doing, plundering his kingdom. Therefore, 2 Timothy says, the Lord's bondservant, you, us, the Christian, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach. It's a rhema activity. Patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, speaking the truth. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do as well. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood but spiritual forces of wickedness. This is real stuff and we are given the most amazing real weapon to come against the enemy. And so what Jesus said to Paul is the same thing that Jesus says to you and to me. Acts 26. I am sending you, Paul, you guys, to open their eyes, those held captive by the enemy, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. This is a wonderful call that we all have in the Great Commission has sent people to wield the sword so that men and women are set free and children from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. This happens with the word of God when it's prayed, when it's preached, when it's proclaimed, when it's taught, when it's sang, when it's spoken in bedrooms. This is the action of the word of God. And so Paul, knowing these things, said what we need to be able to say. Romans chapter one. I am eager to preach the gospel. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. The sword of the spirit 
made powerful by the Spirit himself, the plunging power of it to cut the hearts of men and women. Paul says, I'm excited to preach the gospel because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Paul knew that there was much in his life he could be ashamed of. Read Romans chapter 7. He was a Christian killer before he was converted. There was much he could be ashamed of, but he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God into salvation. I'm not going to be embarrassed about that. I know when I go to work on Monday, my boss is going to say, hey man, don't do that Jesus thing here. I know when I'm in my classroom on Tuesday, the professor's going to say, hey, we're not talking about that Jesus stuff here. I know that I'm with family and friends with whom I have much relational clout and therefore much to lose on a relational basis. And they're saying, hey man, don't push that Jesus stuff on me. We got to say, listen, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. And so the speaking, the proclaiming, the teaching, the praying, the talking about, the singing of the word of God is an act of aggression against the enemy plundering his kingdom. And so what we want to do is apply that sword to our own hearts and to the hearts of others by the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, sometimes it's our hearts they need to get cut by the sword. One pastor once said it's a two-edged sword, meaning, yeah, it cuts the hearts of others as it goes forward and cuts down the work of the enemy, but it cuts down the work of the enemy in our own hearts, right? That's what Hebrews 4.12 says. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing. There's that idea of that, that precision dagger, piercing as far as a division of soul and spirit, going to the deepest places of who we are of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know, sometimes I can't even discern my own motives, my own thoughts, my own intentions. I think I'm doing this for your glory, God, but maybe it's for mine. I think I'm doing this for the good of my wife, but maybe I'm manipulating it. It's actually for me. I think I'm doing this to be the humble servant that Christ called me to be, but maybe I'm actually doing this to promote myself. I need to get cut by the word of God, which judges between thoughts and intentions, goes to the deepest place of who I am and reveals there the lies of the enemy that I've been believing. That's what the word of God does. It cuts us as well. Sharper than any two-edged sword. But it also, when it's talked about, taught, proclaimed, sang, prayed, it also cuts the hearts of others. After Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, it says, now when they heard this, they were pierced, to the heart, okay? It wasn't the plunging power of Peter. It was the plunging power of the Holy Spirit as Peter proclaimed the word of God. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so in light of Jesus, the word going forth. Men and women are delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son as they respond to the word of God. One of the greatest things that we can do within the community of faith here within the church is speak to each other the word of God as needed in the right moments. Man, this, this can be a life savior. Okay, again, that idea of rhema, the spoken word. Sometimes that means in warfare, the right word at the right moment, in the right situation for the right person. 
as the Holy Spirit gives you revelation and leads you to speak into one another's lives. That's why that verse that we looked at earlier in Hebrews says, encourage one another day by day as long as it's called today. The right word at the right moment in the right situation spoken to the right person. Ephesians was getting at this two chapters earlier when it said in chapter 4, verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, help me God, but only such a word as is good for edification, building up of others according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. See, there's that idea of properly wielding it. The need of the moment, knowing how... The weird thing about spiritual warfare is sometimes when we're getting attacked, sometimes when we're believing a lie, sometimes when we're being tempted or oppressed by the enemy, tempted or oppressed by the enemy, we're the last ones to see it. Have you ever noticed that? It's part of the schemes of the enemies. He doesn't want us to realize it's his attack. He just wants us to think, oh, I'm moody or this thing or I didn't get my... Sometimes that's true and we're jerks because of that. But other times, it's, we're just getting attacked by the enemy. We can't see it. We need someone to come along and say, hey, bro, that, that's a lie that you're believing. Or you're giving into that thing. Or that's not your true identity in Christ. Or that's compromise in that area. Or, hey, you're not hearing what Jesus has to say about that. And so we need someone to come and speak the right word at the right moment. Don't you want to be the person who's able to wield because you've unfolded and spent time in and treasured in your heart the right word at the right moment for the right person? I mean, it could be life-saving. When Daisy, my daughter, was diagnosed for the can- with cancer for the last time, doctor took us in a room and told us the situation, and we knew what was up. It was a bad situation. And we had just come off a long season. You know, I'd been really mad at God for a long time. I had been in rebellion to God. And things were incredibly precarious. And then we got this news, you know, this is, this is it. The doctor left the room and left Kate and I in there together. And we just started weeping and crying out. And I just was yelling out, God, you have to be with us. You have to be with us. We can't do this. You have to be with us. He was feeling so far off at that moment. And I had been in such rebellion to him. You have to be with us, God. We can't do it. You have to be with us. And at that moment, Kate's iPhone that was sitting on the table made that little iPhone ding noise that was a text. And one of our worship leaders, Zoe Hilner, the wife of one of our elders, sitting at her house in Carpentry, was moved by the Spirit, didn't know what was going on, had no idea at that moment to send us a text message of Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That was God's word to us in that moment. And it helped us in the most tremendous way. I am so thankful that Zoe had spent years unfolding the word of God daily, that she had treasured it in her heart, that she had already committed to memory these things, that in the moment of need, God in his kindness might by his spirit quicken it to her mind. Send this to Britt and Kate, that in the moment of deepest despair, God would say directly to us, I am with you. Man, it just, it just cut off the work of the enemy right there. You know what the enemy wanted us to think? God is not for you. God is not near you. How can God be in this? Man, that saved us that day. 
So powerful when we pray scripture for people. The rhema, spirit, sword, praying scripture for people. The other day, a pastor called me from another state and he'd been going through a really difficult time and he called me for counsel and things were really tough and he was beginning to despair and a lot of bitterness and all these things. And I didn't know what to say to him, man. I'm not a good pastor. I don't know what to say at those times. But I said, brother, just, just let me pray for you. And I just felt moved by the spirit just to pray scripture over him. Any scripture that the Holy Spirit was bringing to mind, I just began to pray for him. Just whatever the spirit is bringing to mind. I'm so thankful that I've hidden the word of Christ in my heart, that the word of Christ rolls richly in my heart, that the spirit had something to remind me of then. And I just prayed those things over him. And I was just like, oh, I hope that helps brother. Goodbye. And I got an email a couple of days later that said, every scripture that you prayed just cut off the work of the enemy. One thing after the other, it just cut off anger. It just cut off despair. It just cut off bitterness. It cut off anger. It cut off all these things. It was the word of God empowered by the spirit of God plunging deep into who he was and cutting off the work of the enemy that was a help to him. This is what we're called to do as a body of Christ. And then there's one last way that I want to mention that speaking the truth of Christ is warfare. When we come together and we worship Jesus in song as a church, it's all about Jesus, right? We're coming here and we're offering up a sacrifice of praise. It's not about how we feel. It's not about the song that's being played. It's not about the worship leader. It's about Jesus Christ who died in our stead, rose from the dead, ascended unto heaven, is exalted with the Father, and is coming again to right every wrong, the glorious captain of our salvation. It's about Jesus. So no matter how we feel, we come in to exalt the name of Jesus, to join with the heavenlies where the angels are always around the throne saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We come to do that. Now listen. Though that's about Jesus, let me tell you the effect of that, a a, a secondary effect of that is that worship becomes warfare because the exalting of Christ is such an affront to the enemy. The glorious singing of the name of Jesus, the singing truth, the rhema, the speaking, singing truth of who Christ and what he's done is such an affront to the enemy. It's like fingernails on the chalkboard. No, it's worse. It's like a sword across the throat. When the church of Christ worships Jesus in spirit and in truth, that is true warfare. So I get so frustrated sometimes when I come into the church and I see us at the call of worship just being passive, not singing, not exalting, not bowing, not kneeling, not clapping, just kind of passively unengaged in that. You know who's pleased in that moment? The enemy. If worship is exalting Christ, then the enemy has won a great victory if he gets you to not do it. The enemy is so pleased when he's got a church that is silent, that won't raise its hands, that won't shout, that won't bow, that isn't passionate and exalting Christ, that is refusing to bring the sacrifice of praise. It's a great victory for the enemy. Church, worship is warfare. Let's refuse to give the enemy any ground in our church. When the call to worship comes and it's time to sing to Jesus, my gosh, sing to Jesus. Martin Luther used to say, let us praise the Lord and spite the devil. 
Let us praise the Lord and just bum out Satan. Man, let's do that. So then, brothers and sisters, worship an act of aggression against the enemy. We need to learn to wield the sword of the Spirit and keep it sharp. Every other sword dulls with usage. The sword of the Spirit gets sharper as you use it. And my first accountability partner years ago, I don't know, decades ago, goes to this church now, Ian O'Neill, he used to say to me, hey, bro, is your sword sharp? And that meant, have you been unfolding the word? Is the word of Christ dwelling richly in you? Are you meditating on it day and night? Are you treasuring the word of God in your heart? Are you meditating on it, memorizing it? Is your sword sharp? Christian, do you know how to wield it in the moment of need? And is it sharp? We must keep the word, the sword sharp by being in the word. So it's not enough to listen to sermons. Okay, every Christian has to read and study the Bible for themselves. We're trying to teach you how to study the Bible. That's why we have classes available Monday night in theology, Wednesday night, how to interpret scripture. We have books available, basic Bible interpretation. Any simple person can take this and learn to interpret and study the Bible for themselves. Every Christian needs to read and study, meditate and memorize, obey and apply. That's what it means to wield and to keep sharp the sword of the spirit. Because Jesus taught us in the parable of the sower that one of the main schemes of Satan is to snatch the word from our hearts. The word is sown and Satan wants to come along and snatch it from our hearts so that it doesn't bear effective fruit in our lives. Don't let it happen. Wield the sword defensively, offensively. Keep it sharp. And remember that the power to penetrate is in the person of the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit empower you to be strong in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm and resist in the evil day. Great provision in the person and work of Christ. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness. Thank you for your provision. And now, Lord, make these things just super real in our lives. Gosh, it'd be such a bummer to just hear sermons and not be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to preach and not have your Holy Spirit do deep works in us. Please, Spirit of the living God, teach us to wield your sword. Give us a love for the word of God. Teach us to treasure it to meditate on it, to memorize it. Open our eyes that we might behold great things from thy word. Let your word dwell richly in us that we might be like a tree firmly planted by water, that we might be steadfast and immovable, that we might defend against the enemy and take ground for your glory. Please, God, do these things in us. In Jesus' name we pray.